You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Our guest today joins us from Ukraine. For obvious reasons, our connection wasn't very strong, and so in some parts, the audio quality isn't the best. We thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Human Rights Talks. This is a special uh, episode about the war in Ukraine. Lesia Vazilenko is a Ukrainian parliamentarian who also specializes in human rights and international law issues. Mrs. Vazilenko, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, how is everyday life for you and your family at the moment? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you finally. Well, it's rather difficult because most of the time we are separated and then we've been in the status since the 1st of March. Uh, so basically we see each other maybe twice a month uh, for, for a couple of days and just had the chance to reunite for a couple of pretty much the same situation for the next year. Mm-hmm. And um, as a parliamentarian, how do you do your work with your colleagues at the moment? How do you function as a parliament? There must be some kind of unity, but at the same time, you must try and continue to do some work. Well, absolutely. Yeah. But that's uh, much easier than actually communicating with the family because parliament, the same as the Ukrainian government and all the other uh, state bodies, uh, we've been functioning uh, since day one, since 24th of February, as, as normal uh, in a way. So we sit in the same uh, parliamentary building in the center of Kiev, and uh, we also uh, do do our work. We we sit in committees, we uh, draft laws, we we even have deliberations in parliament as of now. And since the, the start of the uh, invasion, uh, you've spoken a lot to to the media, including here in Quebec. I know Quebecers love to hear your voice, especially since your French is so beautiful. Um, and your your father, I think, was an ambassador. How how do you envision your role now during this war? Are you some kind of ambassador for Ukraine as well, trying to raise um, awareness about what's happening in Ukraine? Well, yeah, I would say so. Uh, I, I didn't think of myself as an ambassador, but I did definitely see myself as a fighter on the informational front and on the international informational front. Uh, the, the fact that Ukraine is winning is, of course, due to the unity of Ukrainians and to our resilience and our determination. Us, it is all cost because it's, we're fighting an existential war. If we lose, there will be no more Ukraine. We will stop to exist. Uh, but the fact that we are able to, to fight, the fact that we have the instruments to fight, that is largely due to our international support that we've been uh, getting. And international support relies largely on, on public opinion. So it's uh, parliamentarians like me and other personalities, uh, public figures that are speaking out, talking to the international media all the time in various platforms that uh, have a role in, in all of this, uh, a role in uh, informing public in Canada and other overseas uh, territories and countries about uh, what's going on in Ukraine and what mm-hmm. we really need at this point in time to make sure that we, we keep winning and to make sure that at the end of the day, you're victorious. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, we, there have been numerous reports of war crimes and human rights violations committed by, by Russian troops, by Russia. Which ones kind of stood out for you, especially a hum, as a human rights lawyer? Uh, well, I think that 
for me, like for most of the world, uh, the, the shock came with, with Bucha. I mean, the, the atrocities that were uncovered there. And when I say Bucha, I actually mean all of the small towns and cities around Kiev. Uh, and uh, th that was just unthinkable. I mean, we understood that uh, we are at war uh, in the early hours on the 24th of February. Uh, we saw what the Russian army was doing and every day, uh, myself and millions of Ukrainians were asking the same question, why? Why, mm. why are they doing this? Why are they attacking? Why are they killing? Uh, why are they destroying? I mean, this is not the way to, to have good neighborly re relations in the 21st century. But then when the information came of all of these uh, bodies in mass graves, children with hands tied behind their backs, uh, naked bodies of women being found next to cars. I mean, that just really hit uh, a nerve. And I think that for days I couldn't sleep uh, just, just because the puzzle wouldn't fit in my head. Like, how, how can this happen in the 21st century? Who are those people? Are they people at all that they would act in the same way against other human beings? Mm -hmm. Um, and what are you hearing uh, about what's what life is like in in Ukrainian territories currently occupied by Russians? Well, the reports are very different. It's really difficult to be a uh, Ukrainian. If you want to continue speaking your language, if you want to continue showing support to the Ukrainian military and actually any kind of activist to Ukraine, then you are basically in danger. And um, that's the worst of it. I mean, for me, uh, knowing the history of Ukraine, especially the history of Ukraine during the 20th century, uh, it's clear what Russia is doing. Russia is trying to um, put a label on anything that is Ukrainian and put a label of, of danger on that. Just like uh, throughout the 20th century, it was not just uncool to speak Ukrainian, it was dangerous to speak Ukrainian at many points uh, under the Soviet Union. It wasn't just uncool to demonstrate the Ukrainian flag, that blue and yellow flag, which, which is now very common in many municipalities across the world. Mm. It was dangerous. There was a criminal uh, act prescribed in the criminal code of the USSR for carrying Ukrainian flags and demonstrating them. And this, this is what essentially is being done in those occupied territories. If you're openly Ukrainian and if you're showing active attributes of your Ukrainianism, uh, then you are in danger of being persecuted and you are in danger of being exterminated. Yeah, and we've, um, we've heard, um, more, we're hearing more and more about these uh, filtration camps and filtration systems and also about forced assimilation, including children, you know, they're now being forced um, to learn Russian or to learn Russia's vision of, of history. What do you know about this? Uh, we have many reports coming in about that. So uh, there are uh, the numbers which Russia is giving, there are the numbers which we have in the Ukrainian government, and there are the numbers which are yet to be uncovered as the truth, as uh, international investigations go underway. And I believe that one of these days we, we should be ha having a breakthrough and international bodies should be allowed to make the international investigations. Russia has been reportedly saying that uh, way over a million Ukrainians have been uh, deported to the territories controlled by Russia or to, to Russia per se. 
filtration camps have been set up. What is a filtration camp? A filtration camp is a facility. Essentially, it can be an old summer camp or, or, or any such facility set up where people are brought in, their belongings are searched, the content of their houses are searched. And um, these people are being either identified as Ukrainian, active Ukrainian, active supporters of Ukraine, and then they're taken to other facilities, presumably interrogation facilities, and in some cases we have information that these have been torture centers, or um, people are marked as being okay, and then uh, they are allowed to leave these filtration camps if they can prove that they have relatives or friends in Russia, and mm. that is basically their only chance to escape. Uh, there are a number of stories of people who have uh, been let out of these filtration camps to go and rejoin family or friends uh, who lived out uh, in, in some parts of Russia. And then from, from that point, they would get to the border uh, with Finland, for example. They would cross over the border and then make their way back into Ukraine or to other European countries where they would seek refuge. So this is when we are talking about filtration camps. The mm -hmm. worst thing uh, in all of these procedure of, of, of deportation uh, is not just that it's a crime, it's a war crime, um, but it's that it affects uh, the Ukrainian population in the way that it has characteristics of a genocide. Mm -hmm. Because children are being removed from the Ukrainian territory and these children are then being placed in uh, Russian families uh, under uh, three months ago by the Russian parliament to allow uh, a facilitated, a simpler. And uh, basically these children, you can imagine, they will not, never be learning Ukrainian. They will probably be brought up as Russian and probably be brought up with a certain hate of Ukraine and a certain shame of their Ukrainian roots. And they are probably going to be trained as a, a fifth column element an element of uh, a propaganda machine or uh, an infiltration machine used to uh, break up Ukraine in the future. Because Russia will not stop mm. until it annexes Ukraine and incorporates it into itself and thus rebuilds a bigger Russian empire. And mm -hmm. that Russian empire will not include the Ukrainian Ukraine. And Ukrainians would, will have to be gone from that part of Ukraine. They will have to be wiped out and all Ukrainianness will have to be quenched. Essentially, all of the things that I have just listed, they make up characteristics and elements of the genocide. Absolutely. And, and do you think one day we can hold perpetrators accountable and what kind of what kind of tribunal would you like to see would it come be a tribunal in ukraine or would you like to see perhaps something international uh if we do not hold russia accountable and by russia i mean all the perpetrators the soldiers the generals the commanders the high political elite who were giving the orders if we don't hold them accountable, then there is risk that this crime will be, these crimes will be repeating themselves, not just within Ukraine and the European continent, but also beyond, because other totalitarian leaders will be getting inspired rather than deterred from committing the same kind of atrocities. Mm -hmm. Inspired, why? Because there's no punishment. There's a 
certain kind of behavior which uh, which leads to to losses which essentially amounts to war crimes but there's no consequence there's no punishment so that means that there's a green light and then you can go ahead and the international community is going to do nothing so if we as an international community uh and as uh, separate nations want to continue to to have guarantees that these atrocities and these crimes will not become the rule of thumb uh, then we must act and we must make sure that the perpetrators are, are brought to responsibility and that justice is served. How do we serve justice? Justice can be served only in international tribunals. This is why already at this point, there's the International uh, Criminal Court, which is uh, which has, I think, 42 investigators from different countries who are working on uh, gathering evidence of the war crimes and crimes against humanity, which are being committed by Russia and Ukraine. And these cases, of course, will be uh, brought before uh, before the ICC, the International Criminal Court. And uh, every single person every uh, guilty of this crime will be, will be judged accordingly. Um, the international tribunal, if we're talking about an international tribunal, yes, Ukraine is working on this topic as well. And we are uh, very much advocating for the creation of an international tribunal on uh, condemning the crime of aggression committed mm -hmm. by the Russian Federation against Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, the crime of aggression is not under the jurisdiction of the National Criminal Court. This is why we need a special tribunal. Uh, not something where you need uh, a huge witness stand or a lot of evidence being brought in. Uh, the crime of aggression has clear criteria, uh, which uh, uh, which basically have already been met on many occasions by Russia. And it's a matter of putting it all together, get, uh, uh, writing out the evidence on some kind of 40-page memorandum or so, and then uh, having a panel of international scholars, international uh, judges who would uh, actually make the conclusion and indict Russia and the Russian leadership for that. But then we come to the interesting question. So uh, say the International Criminal Court, the International Tribunal have all come to their conclusion that okay, Russia, Vladimir Putin and all the other leaders of the Russian establishment are uh, guilty as charged um, under the various international rules and norms. Um, then comes the responsibility. The responsibility of state is very important and um, it's not enough just to to stop the crime of aggression or to stop the war crimes but it's important that reparations are paid mm -hmm. uh, that everything that can be restituted is restituted and everything that cannot is paid back in in kind or in monetary form and i think this is the most important thing where the international community is still lacking and where discussions are not happening as extensively as they should be there should be an open dialogue um including uh heads of state including um different kind of uh, representative of governments uh, scholars legal experts uh financiers that would uh, sit down and figure out how much money is needed to restore Ukraine, what has been destroyed, and in what kind of form will it be taken from Russia? And how do you think, I mean, you're an Ukraine parliamentarian, how do you think fellow um, European and Kenyan parliamentarians can 
what can they do not just to stop the war, but as you said, also to hold Russia accountable for the war crimes? Well, I mean, there must be a political will. And at this point in time, I feel that certain legislation in certain countries needs to be changed uh, because it's not it's not fair to say that France or Germany or Canada or the US should be paying for the damage that was caused by Russia and Ukraine because it's mm -hmm. not Canada, France, Germany, or the UK or whatever other countries that caused this damage, it was Russia. So hence it's Russia who should pay. And it's the Russian people who through this payment should understand to the full extent their culpability and the responsibility of their inaction and the, the choice they make to avert their eyes from what is happening right next door uh, in Ukraine. Um, so this is this is the number one point. There should be an, a full agreement on that. So there should be a stepping away from any kind of ideas and notions that you know the the compensation system or the reparation system, Putin, and we don't want that. It's not about humiliation. It's about first of all justice, and second, it's about guarantees of a non-repetition of a large number of international crimes, starting with aggression and ending with a whole range of crimes and competition. And uh, with that, the, so uh, as I said, the, there must be a change of legislation. There must be a, a legislation that allows the freezing of assets uh, of Russia, of, of the state, uh, within the territories of, of the foreign countries where Russia may have its assets. And then those frozen assets and the revenues from them could go to the uh, renewal and uh, restoration fund, which, which will be needed to rebuild Ukraine. Um, second thing that needs to be done is there needs to be um, just a general concept that uh, it's not about uh, bringing Russia to its knees and, uh, you know, it's not about humiliation, as I said, but it's about actually making sure that Russia is never again able to assemble an army uh, big enough and strong enough to attack any country, Ukraine, the Baltics, any kind of other Eastern European country, or any kind of other military uh, interventions anywhere else in the world. For example, like they've been doing in Syria, like they've been doing uh, in, in different other parts. Uh, so this, this should also be the understanding. Then there should be uh, drafted out the how. How do we do it? How do we get to it? Um, I mean, it can't be like with Germany after Second World War, where the whole nations were, were being paid for by, by the United States, the mm -hmm. German Marshall Fund, because they were giving in the money into Europe and then including Germany to rebuild and then Germany was repaying. Uh, so that's that's an interesting mechanism which could be in place, but I'm not sure it will work in this case, again, because Russia is so vast, it, 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 it just wouldn't work. How do you think the uh, the war in Ukraine has changed Ukrainians' vision of democratic values? We feel we all feel like yeah. we're fighting for democracy. We uh, definitely feel like we're fighting for democracy. Uh, the last surveys that have been carried out show that uh, ninety percent of Ukrainians feel like we live in a democracy and that democracy is worth fighting for. Uh, we are fighting for freedom. We are fighting for independence. And I think that in the last 183 days, in the last six months, 
uh, every single Ukrainian has uh, reassessed what independence and freedom means for them and what democracy actually really means. We have learned to feel it, to know exactly what it is and uh, to, to know what, what we are fighting for, apart from it being also the, the fighting the struggle for our own very existence. Mm-hmm. And finally, perhaps one final question. How do you talk about the war to, you, to your own children? I think you have three children. Um, how do you talk about the war and how should we um, as an organization talk to Canadians here about the war in Ukraine to make sure that they don't forget about what's happening? Uh, well, it's important to talk about what's happening every single day. Although uh, the topic of the war in Ukraine might be slipping away from the international media, uh, we must even more aware of it and we must keep talking until the very last Ukrainian territory by having awareness around the topic we are mobilizing action first we think then we talk and then we act is the, the rule of thumb and we've been grown up uh, and having lived act eight years ago, uh, we we just must approach the situation with, with much more awareness. And this is exactly how I do it with my own children. Uh, it's easier for me because all of them uh, have been born already during the war. So how do I talk to my children about the war? Uh, essentially, it's a, a bit easier because every day they, they've had this the, uh, the war in the background and the struggle for independence in the background uh, of their of their everyday lives. And uh, to tell you the truth, it's just by telling the tales and retelling the news every day. So uh, I talk about it, my husband talks about it, their grandparents talk about it. And it's being the, the war, we don't, we don't hide. I don't try to shield them from, um, uh, from from whatever the reality is in the country, they know that there are air raids in Kiev, and this is why they cannot go have to wait it out. Mm. Um, they can approach and ask me questions, and I will always be openly answering them. Uh, we watched together the addresses of President Zelensky of uh, August and twenty fourth was uh, the Ukrainian Independence Day. We started it by by watching the address of the president and singing the national anthem, and um, it's about teaching them what being Ukrainian is really like and uh, you know it's it's part of them it's part of their heritage it's history is happening right now they live as history is happening mm -hmm. and i think that yes it is a very difficult time it's a very tense time and it's uh, you know it's causing a lot of damage and i hope that i've done a good job from shielding them from the from the psychological effects of the war and of, oh, I've done a good job definitely of keeping them alive and uh, not injured and not wounded. Um, but the rest of it, I, I'm a firm believer that they need to know the truth and they need to have the answers to the questions now. Mm -hmm. Well, so you, said you have certainly done a good job talking to Canadians about what's happening. Yeah, I try. <laughs> I, I, know, I know it must be hard to constantly be talking. But... Yeah. No, but it's important. I really feel that, you know, just by having the information out there, this is what is happening, uh, helping to push it forward. And this is why we've been getting the weapons. This is why we've been getting the, the, the financial aid. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Asia, so thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for your wonderful work. Thank you as well. Oh, thank you.